Hello there. This is CSW, creator of Incarnation Red. If you enjoy Incarnation Red and want to help keep it going, support the show on Patreon via the link listed in the episode notes down below. In return, you'll receive a variety of perks ranging from a monthly Q&A slash horror gaming livestream to a chance of having a mini-episode made based off of you and your fears released on the main RSS feed for everyone to hear. Additionally, all patrons receive access to an exclusive patron-only Discord server where you can chat with fans and myself, watch live streams of pre-release episode editing, and join in on regular horror movie nights. I rely on your support to keep the show going, so any amount, no matter how small, will help me bring you more scary stories more often. Link is in the episode notes down below. Additionally, if you are a fan of audio drama podcasts in general and want early access releases plus bonus content from Incarnation Red, absolutely sign up for Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators for just $10 a month. You can think of Apollo Plus almost as the Netflix of audio dramas, offering exclusive content, ad-free and early access releases, behind-the-scenes content, supercuts, and a whole, whole lot more, all by supporting the creators you already know and love. With Apollo Plus, 70% of the revenue goes directly to us creators and provides all of us, both creator and listener, with a place to enjoy the shows we love, such as Afflicted, 13, and of course Incarnation Red, and a whole, whole lot more. And of course, Hemophobia, my upcoming horror podcast, will be there too, so join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com slash plus, that's P-L-U-S. Incarnation Red is a horror anthology podcast and thus contains material not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? Episode 15 Investigation It's on? Yes, it's on. <clears throat> Hello. My name is Dr. Adam Dwyer, and I'm a paranormal investigator. If that makes you smirk or roll your eyes, then hit stop on this tape and cease to listen right now. I have no time to justify myself or my studies to someone whose mind is already closed and yet thinks they have anything of intelligence in them. However, if you, as I suspect, are open to the subject of preternatural influences, then by all means, listen. Hopefully this can be of some help to you. What I am piecing together on these tapes is a collection of my findings and evidence in a particular paranormal case, case number 1488. And, as I always do when beginning a new case record, I feel it appropriate to introduce myself, my profession, and my process. As I said, I am a paranormal investigator and have been for 15 years, and in those 15 years I have investigated over 1,000 cases of the paranormal. I have debunked 1,484 of them. I have taken on and solved exactly three. I have failed to solve exactly zero. 
unless, of course, you count the case for which I am creating this tape, a case currently in progress and thus unsolved, but I have no doubt that it will soon become my fourth. Even if it takes a few months, a year, two years even, as is often the case with truly paranormal phenomena, for I cannot stress enough that they are very, very rare. But when they do occur... When they do, the way I see it is that I have an opportunity. An opportunity to gain something that is next to non-existent in the field of paranormal research. Wisdom. Wisdom and understanding of what is easily the most difficultly understood area of life. Humans have theorized for generations over what may be beyond the veil, what exists outside human perception and human definition. And everybody's got a different answer. Some fall back on folklore on metaphysics, on religion. I do not identify religiously as an attempt to boil this unseen reality down into precepts and symbols of human resemblance as a fool's errand. Why would the supposed inspiration of a human reliably tell anything about what is undeniably outside humanity? No. It's not there that the great beyond is unveiled to us. It is in paranormal phenomena that this unseen continuum partially reveals itself willingly. When that occurs, you can guarantee I will be there to see it. That is why, though I have had no more than three cases of legitimately paranormal activity, each one has taught me so much more than any other resource ever could have. And each of these three cases, cases number 161, 329, and 937, have sharpened bit by bit my method. My method is in three phases. Phase one. Collection. This process is greatly accomplished during my initial interviews with the client, as all it consists of is the gathering of all known information, proven and unproven alike. This includes anecdotal occurrences, notions or impressions of an influence's nature or source, photographs, anything at all that has brought a client to me. After this, I narrow down the information to that which is proven, can be tested, or, in much rarer incidences, that which I have personally witnessed or interacted with. If, after this narrowing down process, there is no material left to work with, the case is not taken on, as nothing can be done when there is nothing proven and nothing to prove. Sadly, this is often the case, but when it isn't, we move on to phase two, testing. Since, in phase one, I documented all phenomena that could be tested, I can now go about actually testing those variables, which, unvaryingly, is the longest phase of the entire process. However I determined in phase one that each variable could be tested, often in a multitude of ways, I test them just so, and I especially focus on those that are less logically sound, yet can still be tested, as well as those that, while unproven on their own, have strong similarities to those which have already been proven, whether by the client themselves in our initial interviews, rarely, or by myself at any point during phase two. For example... It may have been proven that when the needle of a record player is dropped onto a particular song of a vinyl record, a door across the room opens. It is therefore not much of a stretch to postulate that perhaps, when the needle is dropped onto a different track, the door might open then as well, or a different door may open. It may not yet be proven, but it is capable of being tested, and therefore must be explored. Now, I say at any point during phase two, because this is a constant, ongoing process throughout the entire phase. 
initial tests, then results of positives and negatives, multiple of both for each single tested variable, then taking those positive clusters and determining possible linkages between them, or further testable notions that stem off from them, then determining how to test those, again, often in a multitude of ways, and initiating those tests, starting the process from the top once more. We followed this repeating process to its natural course, leading always to one of two destinations. Weeding out all variables of paranormal significance until there's simply nothing left to suggest any kind of genuine supernatural phenomenon. Or the establishment of a pattern. To establish an overarching pattern, even if it is uneven or lacking in uniformity, is the grail of paranormal investigation. If you can achieve that, it is very likely that you are already in the clear. For me, it leads directly to phase three, inoculation. I have only had three cases ever reach this point, most fizzling out in phase one and the rest dying out by the end of phase two. But when phase three is rarely reached, it consists largely of one single question. How do we neutralize the threat that is posed by the pattern I established in phase two? It is perfectly possible that no threat at all is posed, rendering our findings still invaluable, yet this phase greatly unnecessary. But I have yet to encounter a case where no threat is posed, likely due to the fact that my clients are, by and large, scared individuals. And in the case of all three clients who have reached this phase, I determined what the path of least resistance was and strongly, strongly encouraged them to take it. This usually involves leaving whatever I determined to be the source's range of influence. In fact, all three cases involved the client simply vacating the area and taking extra precautions to ensure the paranormal disturbance did not follow them. Some see this as a short change for all the years of paranormal investigation to end with the simple act of running away. But it would be far, far more foolish to attempt going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a real, actual, methodically proven paranormal influence. No, it is much better to leave, wiser for the experience, than fight back and prove myself to have learned nothing. There are financial aspects, of course. I live and operate from an already paid-off house that I inherited after my parents died when I was 14, the result of a car crash and not, as several people ask, a paranormal incident. So my fees are relatively humble. Still I must, to survive but also to ward off any practical jokers or scam artists, for it is my experience that those who are under real paranormal turmoil, even if only in their own minds, do not hesitate to pay any price to rid themselves of it. And I... can't say I blame them. However, it is here I must, I suppose, break the trajectory of this record. Because normally, at this point... I use this case's client as an example of one so terrified that they were willing to pay me to solve their case for them. But... Well, I... Uh, in this case, this extraordinarily unique case, the one recruiting my services is me. It started ironically enough, with a rejected case. A woman by the name of Lisa Hardwick came to me, claiming that her husband David had, as she put it, vanished into thin air. She had gone to the police about it already, but they were unable to find anything of use or to make sense of the evidence that, to her, was proof of a paranormal disturbance. 
This evidence was a pair of voicemail messages arriving on her phone without warning in the middle of the night, several weeks after her husband disappeared, and spaced weeks apart from one another as well. The first sounded to be him simply asking what time she might arrive home after going out with her parents to purchase takeout, and it came an entire month after the disappearance. Then, 23 days after that, the second voicemail registered. The same question, but this time a bit more confused, a bit more concerned and urgent. And, curiously enough, asking her whether she had written down anything on a particular sheet of paper before leaving the apartment. A detail so oddly specific that it piqued my interest, piqued it nearly enough for me to take on the case. Sadly, though, I did not. As outside of the barely material evidence constituted by these voicemails, there was absolutely nothing in the way of testable variables, and I assured her that her interests lied more with the police. I wished her well, and told her, should there be any more developments, to let me know. The second hint, though at the time I did not connect the two, came on the evening news. I try to keep a watchful eye on local and world news alike, as it is a perfect possibility for a paranormal case, if it is particularly odd or eye-catching, to end up somewhere on there. But one evening, a couple months after the aforementioned rejected client, what caught my ear was not paranormal. At least, not on the face. Instead, it was a report of a man, some twenty-something by the name of Josiah Laren, who was pleading insanity after butchering two of his friends out in the middle of the woods, some two hours away from town, and burning their bodies in a campfire. According to the coroner's report, he had butchered them with his spare hands. Any kind of insanity plea is naturally interesting to me, as contact with whatever it is that lies beyond human perception is frequently misconstrued with insanity, or even worse, directly causes it itself. And, based on Josiah's plea argument, some type of preternatural interference didn't sound out of the question. He claimed that a creature, as he put it, had taken up residence in him. But he had a difficult time describing the creature, referring to it most often as a sentience and as formless. He claimed it brought him to the point, psychologically speaking, where he felt it necessary to do what he had done to his friends. The insanity plea had fallen through, however, and this was, according to the reporter, partially due to the fact that jurors did not see Josiah as being significantly remorseful. An intriguing bit of news, no doubt, but as there was really not much testability to it and the man was already looking at a lengthy prison sentence, the case was very much out of my area. One bit of news, however, that I did not so readily dismiss came a few weeks later. A disappearance. Just like David Hardwick. One Lyle Vernon, a man with virtually no connection to anybody, just... vanished one day. The only ones to notice were his employers, who, after a week of trying to contact him, eventually went to his place to seek him directly. They knocked and knocked, but no one was home. So, they filed a missing person report with the police. This only led to an equally fruitless search, but one thing they did find was simply inexplicable. With an easily attained warrant, they busted down Lyle's door, and instead of finding Lyle, found... fireflies. An entire swarm of fireflies.
all populating the inside of his apartment. Fireflies are already uncommon in heavily metropolitan areas, such as the one in which Lyle Vernon lived. But to find hundreds of them, maybe even a thousand, as they put it, all swarming inside of a single-bedroom apartment, that's just unprecedented. There were no leads on where to find Lyle. None. His co-workers described him as solitary, a quiet individual, his demeanor and alcoholism being his only defining attributes. Normally I would have ignored his case, but... There... There was something about the fireflies that compelled me to investigate it, and I suppose you could say that's where case number 1488 began for me. I contacted multiple sources within the police department, even some of Lyle's employers, but it was just as it always is with them. The second I was required to introduce myself as a paranormal investigator, I would hear the line go dead. And there was nothing further I could do. But, mercifully, the next step of the process came to me. It is not uncommon that I am approached to investigate criminal cases with a suspected supernatural component. Most of these cases don't make it past phase one, as many criminals are willing to say anything that might save them from a sentence, and if they can blame it on a spirit, they will. But I still give each one a fair shake. Try to treat it as I would any other client. The client in question here came to me just a week or so after I heard of Lyle Vernon's disappearance. His name was Howard Livingston, a father of three, dedicated husband of fifteen years, resident of one of the richest neighborhoods of the city, and his charge was... A bad one. Howard's crime, which to this day he will not even deny, was the maiming, mutilation, and murder of nine individuals, all killed on the same night and almost all completely random bystanders, as far as Howard knew them. According to Howard, it all took place after he discovered his neighbor's corpse in his yard, one of the murders for which he is now suspected, but the only one, ironically, that he denies having done. I call it ironic because... While all the other eight were complete strangers to him, the means by which Howard murdered them were... beyond even the most fervent crimes of passion I've ever heard of. He recounted to me with agonizing remorse how he... cut out tongues and... peeled off faces and... gouged out eyes before forcing the victim to chew and swallow them. And, of course... My first question was why. His answer was that something had taken control of him. Some sentience had taken up residence inside of him and made him want to do it. Made him feel that he had to do it. And it wasn't until he witnessed the suicide of one who, as he privately revealed to me, he had fully intended to murder, that the feeling, the sentience, released him, and he was left sitting on the ground in pure shock at everything he had done. It wasn't long after that when the police found him, and he did not resist arrest. Thankfully, he had not been charged for the murder of the suicidal man he had found, as the police found evidence that the man had not only stabbed himself, but had attempted suicide by jumping off a building earlier that very night. His confession to me, for its entire duration, 
rang bell after bell of similarity to the case of Josiah Laren. And just like Josiah Laren, Howard was pleading not guilty on grounds of insanity. But unlike Josiah, Howard was... deeply remorseful. I could see in his eyes that what had been done was not his doing, could not have been his doing, was simply beyond the range of thought this man seemed to demonstrate. Being a paranormal investigator, I, by necessity, am not easily fooled or lied to, and I generally give nobody the benefit of the doubt. But there was something in Howard's eyes, or rather, the lack of something. The space where something had inserted itself, and had since withdrawn. But I shook myself of those feelings. Sentimental and poetic appeals offer me nothing in the way of evidence, so I went somewhere that would. Forensics. After I signed a few papers, Howard's lawyer was kind enough to offer me a look into the autopsy reports on all the victims. Everything seemed consistent with what Howard had told me, but still I made my own copies and took them home to pour over. And, after not even a day of doing so, I received a call from Howard's lawyer. New developments had come forward, the first being the discovery of over twenty dead bodies in the small building outside of which Howard had been arrested. This was indeed intriguing to me, but not nearly so much as the following one. There was a new detail released by the forensics team, one that he felt I specifically should hear. Apparently, between the time of Howard's arrest and the removal of the suicidal man's corpse, something happened to the body. A large, large number of fireflies burst out of the man's mouth, flying into the sky. It was not two minutes after that that I received another phone call. It was Lisa. Lisa Hardwick. And she had received a third voicemail just a couple minutes before she had called. David was begging. Begging her to pick up the phone. Saying he felt far from her. Far from everything. And then he was cut off. And that was all I needed to open this investigation. After these connected dots, I have spent a significant amount of time staring at their case files, posing them all on a map, drawing whatever connections I could in terms of case similarity, geographic basis, and any other crossovers I could find, but other than what I have mentioned thus far, I have come up with nothing. I have tried to get the address of Lyle Vernon to no avail, still waiting on a few potential sources to get back to me. I've watched both Josiah and Howard's criminal cases closely, though the former has, for the most part, terminated, and the latter needs as many answers from me as I from it. I've listened to all three of the voicemails Lisa has provided for me, poured through them time and time again, but there's just no hint in it. There's nothing I can cling to. Not yet, anyway. 
This case is ongoing, and I have every intention of getting to the bottom of it, but with just how far-reaching this case is, how irrefutable yet simultaneously untouchable its connections are, I am at a greater loss than ever before in my career. I have never worked a case like this, nothing even remotely close. And for the first time, it's me to ask of myself the answers. It's me that needs my method to pull through on this. And it's me as well, standing beneath this convoluted menagerie of phantom threads. Undeniable connections, yet a sheer drought of testable variables. The likelihood of sheer coincidence being the great connector between all these cases is astronomically low. And yet, what connection could I prove in pure, material, undeniable evidence? Is there even one? <sighs> By the end of these tapes, there will be. If I have anything to say about it, there will be. Further investigation is pending leads on Lyle Vernon's home and how I might go about doing physical, in-person inspection of the property, as I feel there must be something of worth to gain there. Other than that, I am considering enlisting the services of an audio analyst to assess first the authenticity, then the nuance or underlying qualities of the Hardwick voicemail messages. I have no doubt the police already did some of this to a degree, but you never know. Um, suspend recording. Well, it's nighttime now, and a number of hours have passed since suspension of recording, but perhaps that is for the better. Nothing of staggering development, but there was a delivery on my porch which I had to suspend recording to collect. And there's nothing outright to suggest its relation to case number 1488, but... Then again, it was from another disappearance case. Or so I'm told. The package was from one of my scouts, so to speak. A person whom I've recruited to covertly seek and collect supernatural objects and send them to me. And in exchange, I pay them handsomely. Assuming it's legitimacy. And the object I've received today is, as my scout put it, in a brief note inside the box, linked to the sudden disappearance of its owner. According to my scout sources, it supposedly was discarded by its late owner's wife, a very religious woman who wanted nothing to do with it, and has since circulated in forgotten shops and locations, carrying its legend with it among those who, like myself, take interest in this sort of thing. The object itself is surprisingly mundane, all things considered. A paperweight. A relatively simple paperweight, even patterned with simple black fluid shapes and translucent tides of glass as well, easily held in one hand. Not similar at all to the leagues of wooden masks, old metronomes, and antique mirrors I'm frequently sent, and that I frequently reject. No, no this. Has no exterior markings that would designate it as paranormally endowed. It's benign. Every day. Ordinary. So there's no reason. There's no reason, really, that I should feel about it the way I do. Again, it does nothing outright. It never breaks character as the most commonplace object imaginable. But when holding it, I... 
It feels as if I am holding a smoldering coal, cooled off just enough to be touchable without injury. Like it's not at its fullest, like there's something inside it whose full potential has been partially obscured by something. My hand feels... Nothing I could pinpoint physiologically. And my mind feels... Nothing I could articulate. But that's not to say that they don't feel anything. Like something. Calling to me. In any case, I can't identify this sensation, really. And thus I can't test the paperweight as a variable, at least not in that subjective of a manner. And perhaps this is all tangential anyhow. There's nothing proving a connection between this object and case number 1488. I suppose the fact that it's from a disappearance case and... Well, maybe the odd nature of this particular case has me considering the serendipitous nature of... Outside my home, at this very moment, are several, several, several fireflies glinting in the night, flying lazily, but all keeping within a radius of my home. At this point, I intend to take up the paperweight in my hand and go out to greet them. I will show them the paperweight and see what happens. I have no clue, no concept at all of what lies beyond these dark, gruesome, far-reaching, yet inexorably connected cases. But I know myself. I know my method. And I know that if something resists being tested, you don't give up. You don't stop there. You find another way to test it. And if that fails, then another and another until it bends to your will, bends to your intellect. And with this paperweight of mine and those fireflies of its, I intend to do just that. Because like I've said, I don't think I've ever worked a case like this in my career. And a whole new type of case demands a whole new type of investigation. Suspend recording. Incarnation Red is created, written, narrated, and edited by CSW. The opening theme was written and performed by Annika Hansen. All music and sound effects used in this podcast are created in-house from scratch. 
For more information and regular updates, follow me on Twitter at CSW underscore horror, or visit my website, cswhorror.com, or like the show's Facebook page, Incarnation Red, as always, spelled R-E-A-D. For behind-the-scenes looks and other scary content, you can follow me on TikTok, or you can follow me on Instagram at Incarnation Red. Thank you for listening. <laughs>